Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. My guest today is Default Friend, who is somebody I've enjoyed following on Twitter, although she is, alas, no longer on that platform, as well as um, following her Substack Default Wisdom uh, for some time. And we're here to particularly talk about her project, which has to do with the sort of deep history of the internet and um, it's and the lens through which she sees it, which is often um, fandom. And I, I think in some sense, the argument is that, as, as I understand it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, the, the internet is essentially the space in which everything is or becomes fandom. Um, or at least behaves like it. Is that is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, so anyway, thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so specifically, we're going to maybe start off with a discussion of a, um, a shared interest of ours, which is the work of uh, Sherry Turkle, who many people will be familiar with from a... Uh, I'd say some of her more recent work, I, somewhere around 10 years ago, she kind of went on the sort of TED Talk circuit and had a bunch of like New York Times op-eds. And to be honest, I think they were often seen by sort of, you know, young hip millennials as, as sort of cringe and, <laughs> um, you know, all the stuff about the need to restore conversation and... Um, and so on. So people may be more familiar with that, which is probably her most popular work to date. And uh, that has kind of, um, you know, given her a larger profile. But she, you know, going back to the 1980s, was writing these very deeply researched and fascinating um, sociological studies about how people related to computers and how computers changed people's uh, sense of who they were. And then that continued in the 90s um, with the rise of the internet. And she writes this book, which I think will be the main one that we'll talk about, um, Life on the Screen, Identity in the Age of the Internet, which comes out in 1995. So this is sort of the era of like Sandra Bullock's The Net and uh, you know the movie Hackers. Um, I don't know if you're fans of those those two movies, but I recently, <laughs> I recently rewatched them and uh, found them quite, quite fascinating. Yeah. It's so, it's so weird how they're, you know, in, in life on the screen, uh, Sherry talks about this, about how, like, even then there's this performance that computers belong to like this, this hacker group, but yeah. that's just like one slice of hobbyist that kind yeah. of like, like even by the time that movie comes out, it's just it's it's not the the mainstream kind of relationship with computers. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, anyway, it comes from a moment. I mean, when personally I was, you know, a teenager, sort of earliest teenager and uh, had basically no 
I did not use the internet at all really until I went to college, um, except in very small ways. So I was not an early adopter. Um, so this book is, you know, a study of, of people who are already deeply immersed in the internet in various ways um, by 1995 or the years leading up to it when she was working on it. And I think it's worth reading just the first paragraph of the book um, where she states, we come to see ourselves differently as we catch sight of our images in the mirror of the machine. A decade ago, when I first called the computer a second self, these identity transforming relationships were always one-on-one, a person alone with a machine. This is no longer the case. A rapidly expanding system of networks, collectively known as the internet, links millions of people in new spaces that are changing the way we think, the nature of our sexuality, the form of our communities, our very identities. So, you know, I think this kind of gives a, a pretty clear overview of, of both the focus and also how it, you know, very much anticipates most of the kind of central debates that come out of, you know, commentary on internet culture today. Um, and you say in, I, I think the most recent uh, uh, of um, entry on your Substack. Every time I read something about the internet pre 2010s, honestly pre 1999, I can't help but think, why isn't this required reading for any and every journalist, culture critic, and public intellectual? So you know, I've had that thought as well. I encountered this book some years back, and yeah, I'm I'm constantly surprised by how few people have read it or heard of it. So I'm just curious, um, you know, what your discovery of this book and Turkle's work more generally um, came out of and sort of what particular aspects of the the subjects that interest you it's illuminated. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, how did I find her? I feel like, so I started doing these, these Tumblr interviews um, a while back. Uh, I'd say like end of, end of the spring. So I guess that's not really too long ago, <laughs> but it, I've, been, I've been doing them for a little bit. And I, I started wondering, like, you know, if I'm going to be interviewing people about their, their internet usage and as, it, as each interview brought on new questions, I was like, I really should be uh, looking at other people who've done similar work. And I, I'd always been like a, a really big fan of Angela Nagel. So, I, you know, I went back and revisited Kill All Normies. Um, and some of her, you know, her famous, the new man of 4chan. Um, and then I was like, there, there's a whole, there's a whole world of people commenting on the internet though. Um, and then I, I had actually like shoplifted a copy of the virtual community at some point in my life. And I'd never, I'd, I'd never read it. So I, I, I went through that. Um, Henry Jenkins, who doesn't write so much, who doesn't write about the internet specifically, but more about fan studies, um, had always sort of been percolating in my mind. And then somehow through, through that whole rigmarole, I, I stumbled across Sherry Turkle. And the first thing I read of hers was, and that it actually like made it into life on the screen was a, an essay about how we, our identity is distributed and you, you, a good analogy for this is how we have different windows open on our computers. And in each window, we have a different part of our identity and that this like surely has to have an impact on people. Uh, you can't just, you know, be person A in, in window A and then person B in window, you know, in window B and then go out into the real world where you're some kind of, 
where, you know, it's, it's the self that you've always known and perhaps haven't decided to be. And that just does nothing. Um, I mean, to say like what it's illuminated for me, and she's, I feel like she's probably like one of the most prescient writers, you know, there, there is, um, I don't, I wouldn't even like know where to, where to start. Um, I, I, her, I I feel like she predicted sort of, um, self-diagnosis online. Um, she definitely, and definitely the, the DID trend that has recently been cycling back through, through the news, um, the way, the way gender works on the internet. I mean, I mean, it's like the list is like a a mile, a a mile long. I feel, uh, what does it mean to be addicted to the internet? Um, how it's sort of a a never ending game. I, yeah, let's, (laughs) I I could just go off in a million directions. (laughs) Yeah. So this game dimension of it is central. Um, a lot of her exploration here is of these multi-user domains or dungeons, which are originally often associated with uh, Dungeons and Dragons, um, uh, which, you know, once again, bring us back to fandom. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that these are sort of the, uh, the primary field in which she's looking at, again, this, um, this, uh, this new form, you know, what she's calling this um, identity transforming relationship that, um, you know, enables us to interact with a a whole new set of networks of people. And, um, you know, again, what's interesting is that a lot of the the things she's describing are things that we later come to see manifest on, um, you know, Tumblr, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. Um, But um, the, the original context of it really is this kind of um it is seems to be delineated by these these fandoms right which is um you know we have dungeons and dragons we have um trek muse um for star trek and so on so i'm curious um i don't know how you think about that as you know that that basically the kind of dynamics that she's observing are are actually taking place in these settings that are literally um defined initially by fandom and that that's that becomes the basis of the kind of formation of these networks and i mean it it seems like that's a kind of crucial and maybe perhaps neglected um kind of prehistory of of what later happens on social platforms yeah i mean here's there's so many different reasons why like fandom underpins um the the underpins internet culture. One of the big reasons, and this is more in uh, Rheingold's work than, than Turkle's. I don't, I don't know if she devotes more than a sentence to this, but fans do a lot of free labor. So there's a lot to be said about uh, fa- fandom's relationship with identity, but they have, because they're so devoted to their fan object, be it Star Trek or, you know, what Star Wars, whatever it is, um, they're willing to, to build the mud, to, uh, you know, suggest features to build skins. I mean, they do all of this work. So because they're literally building the infrastructure, they, they touch, they touch everything. Um, and that, that's a, that's a huge piece of it. And then the second piece of it is that it's always been a space where people are remixing. Uh, and when you get into 
to, and, and part, it's very participatory. Then once you get into role-playing games, not only are they remixing the, the fan object, uh, they're remixing themselves to fit into the, the narrative, the narrative world of the fan object. Yeah, and then, I mean, I, I, I guess um, what's interesting here is that, again, this anticipates and and I just generally find that, you know, when we hear people talking about the emergence of the social web kind of as, you know, web, web 2.0, um, you know, kind of generally in the early aughts, uh, it, there's just surprisingly little sense of this previous period where, you know, again, if you read life on the screen, it, it just seems clear that almost all of the dynamics we can think about today were already being kind of played out and rehearsed. So, you know, I, I, I don't know to what extent that's, um, you know, that, that probably part of that is, um, you know, has to do with the, the sort of mythos that was created by both the, the sort of founders of platforms like Facebook and the sort of journalists who served as their, um, they're sort of hagiographers in earlier years. Um, but I guess the other thing that's kind of interesting to me is that, you know, is that Turkle herself, you know, basically I would, I mean, it's, it's more ambiguous than this, but, you know, her, her tone in both the second self and life on the screen is, if not celebratory, at least it's, it's largely driven by this kind of fascination and curiosity with how these these new kinds of social realms are unfolding and what's happening in them and how they're how they're changing those who get immersed in them. Um, but then, you know, essentially in the sort of period when she did the sort of TED Talk op-ed circuit, you know, she has basically become known as a as a major critic of um, social media, even before, you know, and, and she was kind of even before, um, like even back in the period when, I don't know, and the sort of standard New York Times opinion column on Facebook was about how it was like, you know, allowing for the Arab Spring and stuff like that. So even before there were so many um, sort of more skeptical voices, she had become one. Um, so I'm curious what your thoughts are as to what, I don't know if you have a sense of like what caused her to reassess this more optimistic view that I, that I think she largely expresses in life on the screen. Um, and to what extent that has to do with how, you know, how these earlier moments kind of differed from what came later in perhaps well, ways that are a bit more subtle. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that I, I've noticed that her like early work does like quite a bit is like delineate. There's like, two kinds of computer user. There's the hobbyist who cares about how a computer works and they're, you know, they're interacting with the machine. And there's the, per the, the people who use it to social ends. And I've always gotten the impression she's, she's, she's written some like, like novella length works um, that go back to sort of like the hobbyist uh, archetype, even, even like post 2010. Um, but it seems like her interest really is in like the social relationships that are empowered by, um, by machines. Um, though she like recognizes like what, what the impact is of like not really um, having a passion for like the tech part of tech and what that might mean for people. 
Um, and life on the screen, she like poses, a, I think, like a very interesting question, which is, um, are people addicted to the Internet because or addicted to MUDs rather um, because it's actually more social than um, the, you know, than the, the life they have access to in the real world, which I think is really interesting and I think is still a relevant question. Um, and I would imagine that her distaste with like Facebook um, or sort of the way people use social media is that it's often about like making yourself into a, a fan object or an influencer um, and, accru you know, accruing engagement as opposed to reciprocity. Yeah, so I, I agree this concern with reciprocity is really kind of central to a lot of her work. And um, she has a really interesting essay uh, or study from maybe uh, somewhere in between Life on the Screen and this later um, kind of more popular material on conversation and so on. And it's called um, Authenticity in the Age of Digital Companions. Are you familiar with that one? No, I haven't read it. It's so it's kind of about it's about her research on um, basically people and particularly kids interactions with, you know, things like Furbies and Tamagotchis and other types of um, these, you know, these kind of companion robots, right, that are that are specifically designed she argues to kind of, um, she uses this term Darwinian buttons. So she says basically they're explicitly designed to kind of hack into our kind of evolutionary, um, you know, uh, cues whereby we uh, recognize someone as another subject. And so, you know, a simple way is a simple way to think about this, you know, would just be like a, a robot is programmed to have certain eye movements or to blink or something like that, right? To, um, to, to kind of um, create an unconscious sense of some sort of reciprocity. And then, um, and then she also talks about this uh, 1970s uh, program called ELISA, which was basically a sort of text-based psychotherapy program. And what was interesting about it was it was a relatively simple sort of, um, you know, interactive kind of text program where you would say, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm having conflict with my father and it would say, you know, uh, tell me more about your father or things like that. You know, it's so it's, it would, but nevertheless, it succeeded in, um, in creating, pe giving people a sense that it, that they were being understood um, just by creating this minimum level of reciprocity. And so, you know, there she's thinking about how machines are being designed to create an illusion of reciprocity. And then the problem here is that this kind of false reciprocity is easier to deal with than um, re the, the sort of difficulty of intersubjectivity. And so it, it makes people, um, she argues potentially, and, and particularly children, it's sort of, is it, she argued, I think this is maybe 2004 that she wrote this. So it, it was sort of in the process of conditioning children to prefer this kind of um, this more frictionless mode of reciprocity that of, of sort of faux reciprocity that they could have with these digital companions to the, the more challenging um, problem of interacting with, you know, another living person. So, I mean, I sort of think then I, I haven't fully traced it, but I, I think there is some sense also that, you know, what you get with these more sophisticated 
Web 2.0 platforms is obviously the introduction of sophisticated AI, right? That, that mediates people's interactions with each other. And so that in some sense changes the kind of sociality that's being created in these spaces. Um, so I don't know if that you know, might have some, some relevance here, but I think it's another think interesting it piece, piece by her. She, because she brings this up a little bit in Life on the Screen too, about she, I think she actually mentions Eliza as well, um, and how she, and how people reacted to it as though it, you know, as though it had a real, it, there was a real person there. But at the same time, if anyone were to suggest that a program like that were to replace a psychotherapist, everyone would be like, "Well, what are you talking about?" And then at another point in the book, she also like makes the observation that um, sometimes people are like mistaken for bots. Um, and that she had been mistaken for a bot at some point. Um, and, you know, brings up exactly what you said, like, are, is, you know, for a, you know, for a portion of this population, is the response going to be to become more bot-like? And I actually like wrote in my margin notes, MPC, question mark, an early, you know, an early warning light of that becoming a, a slur. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. And so, right, I guess then the other, um, yeah, the other sense of this is that there's a, um, that, you know, instead of, right, so instead of becoming a platform for a kind of complex intersubjectivity, it, it becomes a platform that, that um, kind of solicits us to adopt a kind of simplified subjectivity um, that's, that's sort of remade in its in its image in some sense. Um, so, yeah, and then, I mean, another another interesting thing about Sherry Turkle, I'll just go on a slight excursus here that, you know, is part of like where my original interest in her came from, which was that I, you know, when I was in graduate school was like heavily into psychoanalysis. And um, so she has, her first book is about something very different, which is, essentially the kind of popularization of Lacanian psychoanalysis, which is this, you know, extremely uh, complex um, sort of jargon laden, um, some would argue kind of obscurantist, you know, <laughs> form of um, sort of theory, psychoanalytic theory that, um, that nevertheless, particularly in the 1970s sort of became quite popular in France. And so her, her original research was on, you know, what this meant um, and, and how this happened. And so, you know, what's interesting is, first of all, that she kind of initially is kind of shaped by this psychoanalytic framework. And that's, I think, part of why she's so interested in this case of Eliza, of this, this uh, robot psychoanalyst, basically, who's invented in the 1970s. Now, interestingly, there are sort of things that Lacan himself says that are that kind of suggests the, the, the psych, I mean, you know, he, for example, at certain points, he sort of suggests the psychoanalyst should function as a kind of screen, right? Um, so a, a screen for sort of projection. Um, and so, you know, th this idea of sort of, um, of articulating your identity by looking into this kind of um, somewhat opaque screen 
is, is one that already comes up in her work on psychoanalysis. And then the other thing that basically she does is she's she, basically her, her way of thinking about psychoanalysis is that it provides these kinds of models and tools that people can use to sort of navigate and make sense of their lives. And, um, you know, to, to sort of create an external picture of who they are um, and, and of their relationships to others. And then really what she does in the first book on, on the second self is, is kind of transpose that same approach to computers and suggest that with the kind of popularization of computers, you know, they, they become this kind of new model of, of the self, of the subject of the self, right. That, that we, we look at in order to gain some kind of external picture of who we are. And so there's a, there's an interesting both disjunction and continuity there, but um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating that she, she basically spends the seventies, like, you know, interviewing all these kind of radical students and theorists and so on in, in France, particularly in the wake of the 1968 um, uprising and trying to figure out why psychoanalysis became this, this sort of um, popular touchstone in a way that it hadn't been previously. So, you know, so she has that really interesting background that she brings into this. And, you know, I think in some sense, you know, her, I mean, she's also interested in these kinds of political and theoretical subcultures in that time. Right. And so she just transposes that onto you know, looking into, I mean, and she's based at MIT, right? So it's, it's sort of um, part of what she's doing in the second self and life, life on the screen is just kind of looking around at that <laughs> environment, right? Um, so anyway, I mean, she has this really fascinating formation. And then, I mean, another thing I wanted to bring up, because it's, it's in some sense, what's most relevant to my interest in her at the moment is this discussion of theory, right? Where she, she, Basically, I mean, throughout life on the screen, kind of revisits this uh, this body of of sort of French cultural and psychoanalytic um, theory that she was immersed in in the late sixties and seventies, um, and that was kind of the the subject of her first book. So she says, um, in the late nineteen sixties and early seventies, I lived in a culture that sought the self, that thought, that taught the self is constituted by and through language. That sexual congress is the exchange of signifiers, and that each of us is a multiplicity of parts, fragments, and desiring connections. This was the hothouse of Paris intellectual culture, whose gurus included Jacques Lacan, Michel Foucault, Gilles Deleuze, and Félix Guattari. So, but she says, but despite such ideal conditions for learning, my French lessons remain merely abstract exercises. Uh, and then she goes on to say, um, to more than 20 years after meeting the ideas of Lacan, Foucault, Deleuze, and Guattari, I'm meeting them again in my new life on the screen. But this time the Gallic abstractions are more concrete. In my computer-mediated worlds, the self is multiple, fluid, and constituted in interaction with machine connections. It is made and transformed by language. Sexual congress is an exchange of signifiers. An understanding follows from navigation and tinkering rather than analysis. Um, in the machine-generated world of MUDs, I meet characters who put me in a new relationship with my own identity. So, and she actually has a number of... Uh, <laughs> She has a number of kind of examples throughout the book where she'll she'll talk to somebody who's, you know, uh, somebody who's deeply immersed in 
muds or, you know, as a hobbyist of some sort. And, you know, they'll sort of not really make, I mean, I, I know there's like at least one anecdote where like, they don't really, you know, they, they've encountered some of this French theory stuff, but they don't really get it. And then, and then when, when they can kind of link it to this um, actual stuff that they're doing day to day, it suddenly becomes quite clear to them. Right. So this is something that I'm, you know, that I've written a bit about, uh, particularly in my sort of critique of uh, Lindsay's, Lindsay and Pluckrose's cynical theories that, you know, I think you can't really understand the sort of popularization of critical theory um, without thinking about how it's mediated through these, uh, these types of uh, social relations and dynamics that in many ways kind of fulfill and um, reflect the ideas that that are articulated there so I, I i mean i know we've talked a little bit about your you know being interested and she she goes on to discuss um foucault and the panopticon and various other kind of frameworks and how they look different in this setting um i don't know if you're you know if i, I know we talked a little bit about your uh budding interest in foucault uh i don't know you know, what your thoughts are on, about this whole area of interest. I mean, it's definitely central to my engagement with this book, but um, I don't know if how it's, that's come through also in your more, re, you know, looking at more recent developments. Yeah. So I, I mean, this is like a huge blind spot as like, I, you know, as I, I write and I, I continue to sort of dig into internet history. Um, you know, like my, my, my college education was really just like, anything I read was like a play or a screenplay and I didn't have any really exposure to, to theory at all. Um, but then at some point I found that I was like, kind of like, you know, backing into ideas that other people had written, obviously like more intelligently, but it's because of what, you know, Turkle's saying it's because the, all of these things are like acted out online in this interesting way. Um, and it, it, you know, it is plausible that you could kind of fall ass backwards into Foucault and not even realize it's Foucault if you're a really heavy internet user or if you're thinking about sort of like the meta analysis of what does the internet mean to all of us. Um, and then once I started reading people who who wrote about the internet, I was like, okay, they're gonna they keep these names keep coming up. I need to like, I wish I could just like take a class somewhere or something. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I think um, this this relates again to you know this sense of many sort of on the right and center that you know there are all these um, there are all these sort of young people who are uh, you know whose kind of worldview is shaped by these theories, right? Whether it be they about gender or race or sexuality or um, or other things that. Um, you know, see that again seem to derive out of this world of um, of critical theory. You know, of of the the sort of French theory that uh, comes out of the sixties and seventies in particular. Um, you know, I think for one thing, a lot of these are sort of mediated already through their heavily through their American reception, which is something of a different story. But um, but you know, the other thing that I find interesting is the way that these platforms um, allow for these kind of ideas to be consumed. I mean, I think, 
you know, basically it allows them to be consumed for one thing in the form of memes, which is something I've had an episode on, but also just in the form of these kind of little bite-sized snippets and quotes and, um, and the, the way these sort of figures or theorists can become these kinds of characters as well as perhaps objects of fandom. Um, but so, so in other words, like, I think, you know, th- often the, the claim is that there's, you know, this is coming out of the university system, I'd say, that's, uh, you know, that's sort of partly true, but um, this entire kind of processing of it through, you know, various internet platforms seems to me in, in a lot of ways far more significant. Oh, totally. I mean, there's, there's you know, a lot to say on this. Um, the, first, the first is, before I forget, I stumbled across this um, essay um, and this, I have this like, you know, like a thousand page book on fandom studies. And it's, the essay is called The Fans of Critical Theory. And it's all about this. And I don't know when it was written. It must've been written in like 2017 or something about like this growing number of people who like aren't grad students. They don't want to be, um, you know, they don't want to be academics. They don't want to, they don't want to write in any sort of like, you know, quote unquote meaningful way, but they spend hours and hours a day, just like talking about critical theory and like hosting these list serves and stuff. And I thought that was like, I thought that was, I mean, I instantly thought of Twitter. I was like, <laughs> this is sort of, you know, I'm, I'm surprised. Twitter isn't mentioned in this piece, but, I, but I'm very surprised. It must've been written earlier than 2017. Maybe it's just when the collection's from. Um, so that's, I mean, that's one piece that I, I'm, I'm curious, like to what extent people like that um, who sort of just are always on and always posting and kind of infecting the water um, have. Uh, but then there, I mean, there's this other piece that uh, often people who are academics are also really big in fandom. And, you know, as, I, as I've said, like uh, the internet really runs on fandom literally. And also it's like, they're the people who are talking the most and reciprocity is really one of the most important things for any, for any social platform. Um, so like when I, you know, with something like Tumblr, which I kind of think as the, like, that's like, it's not that it's not that universities were the lab leak. It's, it's that I think Tumblr was actually like not ground zero, but where things really disseminated all over. Um, It's, it's, it's from, it's from adults who are already invested in these ideas. And then they kind of, they, it worms its way into the conversation on Tumblr and then it explodes from there, uh, you know, through, cross-pollination and as things get like reblogged and reblogged and, and reblogged. And, you know, I've interviewed at this point, I'm in the hundred, like, you know, high hundreds of people on their Tumblr experience. Um, and almost like, this is not an exaggeration. Almost every single person I talk to is like the first time I encountered any of these ideas that might broadly be called like social justice. Um, the first time I ever read the name Marx, read the name Foucault at all was on Tumblr in the context of a fan community. And it, I mean, it's just like the numbers on this are insane. Um, and especially when I'm talking to like millennials are like, yeah, I didn't, this didn't come up in college at all. And then when I talk to, to zoomers or, or older millennials, maybe they'll have heard of things, um, in school, but it's only like, it's, it's, the it's it's backwards it's come it's from the students and uh filtering that way instead of from like crazy professors who are trying to like poison people's minds or whatever the argument is 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's just, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I've been in spaces where, um, I mean, and being still in the university space, I sort of see this. I mean, there, you know, there was a, or, uh, you know, there, there was, I think going back some decades, this kind of period in which this, this kind of theory was, was enough sort of in vogue in the university setting that, that it was sort of cool or edgy to, to adopt it and sort of attach yourself to it. Um, that I don't think has really been much the case. Um, so it really took this other mode of dissemination to sort of revitalize it because I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, in this sort of late nineties to two thousands, in some ways, a lot of these figures were thought of as kind of outmoded, um, and no longer particularly interesting or cool. And so, you know, my sense is there was a kind of revitalization that, that did not, um, you know, the, the professors who teach this stuff were still teaching it, but, um, you know, let's be honest, not that many people study it <laughs> in college. So, you know, there, that, that is not, and it's always been clear to me, that's not an adequate explanation of how suddenly this stuff um, gains such wide dissemination, which isn't, which isn't necessarily to say that it's very widely read in its entirety, right? I think, again, it's, it's heavily consumed in these kind of fragmentary forms. Um, it's also like a but, caricature of what, yeah, and, yeah. you know, I, I say this without that educational background myself, but I mean, like, even like a cursory knowledge of, let's say, like Adorno, I can tell you that like what James Lindsay thinks Adorno is saying oh, yeah. is that like the precise opposite. You know? Yeah, it's well, that's yeah, that stuff is extremely weird because, you know, that I mean, it, it all seems to be that for that stuff, like the Frankfurt School stuff, it, you know, that whole kind of thinking seems to basically just be about Marcuse, like they it's actually really sort of about Marcuse and I guess then also Gramsci, who wasn't actually a Frankfurt School person. Um, and, you know, but but the only real thing they can come up with is Marcuse being like Angela Davis's teacher. Um, but, you know, that's kind of neglecting the ways that Marcuse was not, you know, that he was the only one of them who actually liked the new left, you know? So, um, so yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. So I, I find all that stuff quite frustrating, but I mean, another thing that I find frustrating about these kind of standard sort of conservative and centrist narratives is that, you know, they, and I think that, you know, the Turco passage I was reading from before, you know, my firm conviction is that the reason that these ideas in whatever sort of fragmentary sort of caricatured or, you know, distorted form they've reached, you know, and, and achieved some kind of mass appeal among um, young people on the internet, you know, it, it, it's because they actually help them think, you know, and again, this is kind of the Turkle approach, right? It's because they give them a tool for thinking about things they're actually seeing and experiencing. And so, you know, that, that's, um, that's kind of how I would approach the theories, right? That there, there, there's a kind of, um, there's, a, there's a, their tendency to circulate in this environment, I would argue is because is, is rooted in the fact that they are actually providing kind of useful angles for thinking about what people are experiencing in that environment. Um, and, and I don't think that's coincidental either because, you know, what's part of what's important to understand about all of this stuff that falls under the heading of sort of postmodernism is it's all essentially thinking about the rise of 
you know, something we might call information societies. Um, and so it, it really all comes out of that uh, sort of uh, post-war moments when we're, we're seeing the beginnings of deindustrialization and we're seeing the um, emergence of a different kind of economy, which is organized around the circulation of information. And so all of these thinkers are to some extent engaging with that like actual historical reality to, you know, to a lesser, more direct extent. And so, you know, they, they are in some sense in, in very, um, yeah, I mean, often very presciently observing things that will only become evident to most of us significantly later. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, they were right about everything, but it is to say that they were, you know, the, the reason they came up with these frameworks that are um, suddenly appealing to people trying to make sense of these new kinds of mediated social spaces is because that, you know, it's essentially the early trajectory of that, that they were attempting to theorize and make sense of. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't comment to your just because this is, you know, this, this is the part that I have like training wheels on right now, but I mean, I'm, I'm inclined, I'm inclined to agree with you. Um, it, you know, if, if, if Sherry Turkle is to, be, to be believed, I mean, that make that makes sense. And, um, I mean, she, she's been my like entryway into a lot of different, uh, thinkers and, and writers that I hadn't been exposed to earlier. Yeah. And I, you know, again, she's fascinating to me because, because of that kind of pivot, you know, that she, she comes out of this, um, this world of sort of French critical theory and writes her first book about that. And then basically everything after that is about cyber culture. Um, so, you know, she's not the only person who was, who kind of had a, you know, who, who was um, to some extent engaged with both of those realms going back a ways, obviously, but I think she's, she's certainly one of the more sort of lucid and um, I'd say kind of least eccentric, you know, she's, she's extremely sort of sensible and <laughs> definitely a kind of, you know, and I think even though she's, you know, I don't think she has very much appeal to sort of critical theory people because she's, even though she engages with those ideas and is clearly influenced by them, she's, she's kind of a, you know, a sort of sensible empiricist in most ways who just, you know, does some very extensive and solid field work and interviews. And, um, that doesn't seem to appeal to people yeah. very often. It's, it's, I mean, it's an interest, it's interesting because like, if you use like, and I, again, this is just my speculation, but it seems like if you use critical theory as like a, a way to help describe something that you, you know, you've seen out in the field or whatever, it, it doesn't, it, it's, it weirdly, like the way in which she's using it seems like people seem like weirdly allergic to it. I don't know. Like it's like less interesting somehow because her work's like really rooted into like, well, what's actually going on? Like, you know, what are people actually doing? Yeah. And I mean, again, I think I, you know, I, I, I feel like her later work was, or at least was received as a lot more polemical um, in the sense of, you know, I think, I think she was read as sort of a, um, I mean, it was odd, right? Because uh, I, I found she was read by, I don't know, kind of hip young people writing about the internet as kind of out of date. And um, 
but you know, she's, <laughs> I think she's, she's kind of a badass because she was, she was there before any of us were, and she was deeply immersed in all this stuff. Um, very early on and also had this um, extremely interesting back sort of intellectual formation and backgrounds. So, you know, I think she, uh, she's sort of seen as, as a bit outmoded, I think today. Um, And a little bit too sort of boomer, a little bit too sort of boomer in her mentality. But um, I would, I would disagree with that assessment. Um, Me too. I don't, I, you know, I kind of don't like Ted talks either, but her Ted talks actually, like, I think are, are pretty good. And like, I, in, I mean, I'm, I'm biased because I'm, I sort of like have like a, like a hero worship sort of relationship with her, you know, speaking of fandoms, but um, you know, I, I, her stuff ages really well. Like it's incredible that something she wrote, you know, in like 1991 in 1995 and in 2010 about, our relationship with technology is it's, I mean, it's, you could read life on the screen today and it's like, this is still 100% relevant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's, there's like not a page that doesn't have some kind of resonance with things that are going on right now. So um, I, I was also just hoping to get a sort of, um, synopsis version of your tumblr project and perhaps you know how it how it draws upon these frameworks and um i mean obviously you're you're doing uh interviews so you know that's a very sort of turkle method turkle like methodology um but you know just more generally what are your what are your main findings so far and why why should people um why should people think more about Tumblr? Yeah, I, I think that Tumblr had a very similar impact as MUDS, or at least like they functioned in the same way. Maybe that I would actually say the impact of Tumblr is probably larger. Um, for a lot of people, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of the things I learned from my interviews is similar to things that uh, Sherry Turkle learned from her interviews, which is that people become immersed in, in these these websites because it gives them a second chance um, or a chance to work out some kind of like psychodrama or a cha- or they feel somehow insufficient um, in the real world and they can remix their identity in a new way. And then furthermore, like with Tumblr, it's like, well, if you mess up and like, because you're always beholden to people's perception of you, whether you're in a text-based role play or whether you're, you know, a Twitter personality or a Tumblr personality. Um, but you could always like delete your account and start over again, um, which of course, some people become like celebrities or they, or they helped build the mud. So they can't do it quite, you know, they can't leave quite as easily. Um, but, uh, and there's that very interesting anecdote about the guy who like lies of, you know, anyway, I won't, I won't get into that, but, um, you know, but for most people, you're like anonymous enough where you could always just start over again. And there's like a question of like, like, you know, how many reboots do you get in your life to get like, to get your identity correct? Um, I've also, I mean, I've also learned a lot about, I mean, like where where have people been exposed to these ideas? What's the impact of um, being online so much? One of the big things I've learned is that like even you know you internalize whatever you're exposing yourself to. So um, like I've talked to a bunch of people about TikTok too, 
Um, and this has been really interesting. A lot of my Tumblr interviews say that um, they started policing their own language and like sort of like self-surveilling, even if they didn't match, like even if their politics weren't aligned with what they read online, they would still behave in a way as though they did just from exposure. And when I talk to people about TikTok, one thing that keeps coming up a lot is if they watch a lot of cooking videos, they actually start thinking about cooking in a new way. Um, and it's kind of like if you ever, if anyone's ever listening has ever done one of those like Middlebury language immersion programs, it all seems like it's the same kind of like mechanism, like just being in it so much impacts how you behave. Um, so, I mean, that, and then to, you know, to bring that all back to Turkle, that's of course like how if you're on a mud 40 hours a week, uh, that's, that's going to be, that's not a hobby anymore. That's a part of your life that starts impacting how you talk to people in the real world. Um, and if you're married on the mud and you're spending 40 hours a week on the mud, then you, you're walking through this world as though you're married, even though you're not. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I'm sort of curious. Um, you know, I, I've had a statement that I've made in a few contexts that I don't know if you agree with it, but, um, you know, I, I think, you know, in, in contexts of, of like conversations about things like radicalization and like misinformation and ideas like that, right, which circulated a lot in the Trump era. Um, I One sort of claim I've made that I, I may, may have sacrificed um, accuracy for pithiness or something. Like that. <laughs> um, we, we, that people talk too much about what the internet makes about what the internet makes people think and not enough about how it makes them feel. Um, so I don't know if that's, uh, you know, I, I think part of what I'm trying to get there is, um, you know, that it, it sort of restructures experience and it, um, it, you know, that to the extent that it's, you know, sort of changing the contents of people's minds. I mean, you know, there are various objections to that idea. One would simply be that, well, that's already, that was already happening before the internet in all sorts of ways. So what, what seems unclear is how it's different. Um, but I, I don't know if that claim makes sense to you, but I also kind of wanted to use it to um, also discuss this question of radicalization and that sort of language. Um, if I recall, I think you have used that to talk about uh, Tumblr sometimes. Um, and um, if I'm wrong about that, correct me. But um, I'm also just, I'm very, I'm interested in, but also struggling to articulate a kind of better, I, you know, I've been interested in trying to articulate a better way of talking about the things people talk about when they talk about radicalization. Um, and I found it, I found it challenging. So I'm partly just interested in what thoughts you have, you know, for me, part of it is that, um, I think there's a kind of radicalization that has a lot less to do with content and more to do with kind of affect, um, that, that it's, it's less what you, it's less a kind of shift in what you believe than in how you believe it or, or in how you articulate or how you, um, manifest your belief in a certain sort of set of ideological convi convictions. Um, so I don't know, that's maybe one suggestion, but um, I don't know what your thoughts are on all of that. 
Yeah, I I'm I'm 100 on the same page with you. I, I it's definitely the internet changes how you think, not what you think, or like what you think is incidental. It could be anything, and I think that's what's not appreciated, um, especially when people like in the Trump era were talking about like right wing radicalization or like oh it's, you know the spread of wokeness is 100 percent about like leftist overreach. It's not really. It's it's just about this like immersion question and. Um, you know, I think the biggest data point that it literally, it could literally be anything, um, well, maybe not the biggest data point and maybe not literally anything, but a, a pretty, this for me raises a lot of questions. Um, pro anorexia actually had a very similar, um, trajectory as wokeness. It just didn't quite spiral out of control in the same way um, for you know reasons that are are both obvious and, and, and less obvious. But I mean, it got to the point where it was like impacting mainstream pop culture. Um, and it, de- it did have this similar thing of like, well, there was like rustlings sort of in the pre-internet era, but the internet definitely changed our relationship with eating disorders. Um, and then there's always this weird piece that, and I, I feel like I said this on every podcast, but I just want to like, you know, spread the word far and wide. Um, there's this weird piece where like the media comes in and it, uh, Howard Rheingold even writes about this in the, the virtual community of like, you want something on the internet to explode. You need two things. You need fans and you need journalists. Um, so journalists create this like weird media narrative layer that may not even be like really reflective of reality, but that's usually what like helps explode ideas. Um, and I've argued that this is like kind of what happened with Tumblr. Tumblr kind of coincides with, uh, you know, freelance journalists becoming more common and and newsrooms slashing budgets. Um, and people start scraping articles from, or article ideas from Reddit and from Tumblr. And then suddenly things that are fringe or like not really happening in the way that it's people say it it's happening um, get written about as though it's news. And kind of like the classic example here is um, with uh, the various gender and sexual minorities that were kind of uh, invent, not invented, but like spread through Tumblr, like, you know, uh, like aerosexual, just like stuff that just like, doesn't, it's like, you know, either we already had a word for it or, uh, it there, you know, it's not really an identity that people are claiming. Um, it get you know, it's maybe one person posted about it as a joke. And then some freelance journalist who's getting paid $50 a pop for an article sees it on Tumblr, writes about it, like this new community, you do, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, that's it. That's also a, a huge piece of it because that creates a very I think unhealthy feedback loop. Yeah, this, um, so this is a a sort of, uh, and maybe we could touch on Angela's work as well here, but, um, you know, another, another thing that fascinates me is, um, the, that I've sort of, and that, you know, the way I situate, and I think I talked about this with her, but the way I situate kill all normies is, um, you know, part of what's interesting is it, you know, she, she writes, she starts writing it at a time when actually the, the journalistic response to 4chan was extremely different from what it became, right? That, that on one hand, yes, in that period, you had journalists kind of, to some extent, you know, promoting these sort of odd Tumblr formations. On the other hand, you had a largely kind of celebratory response to anonymous and it's, 
in that, you know, in the sort of uh, pre-Trump era where it was, it was kind of, um, you know, along with, again, what I, what I mentioned a bit earlier that, you know, you have this period of general sort of optimism about, you know, stuff, this sort of idea that social media was um, spreading democracy, you know, being used to organize Occupy, the Arab Spring, et cetera. And then you also have this kind of celebratory um, uh, depiction of Anonymous as this kind of rambunctious sort of merry prankster group um, that, you know, was was uh, covered in journalism as as largely a kind of positive and salutary thing, and actually specifically by left journalism. So, you know, one thing that's odd with Kill All Normies is that she comes in and is sort of initially, I think, trying to sort of critique, weirdly, even though she ends up being accused of kind of doing a um, apologism for 4chan, you know, in a sense, she's actually trying to critique the, um, the shallowness of that narrative about 4chan. So, you know, the whole role of journalism in kind of shaping and reshaping the way these different sort of communities are are received, which then kind of feeds back into their own sense of themselves um, and how they evolve is uh, is a really and so you know so it seems like what you have on the right obviously is on the other on the other hand you also have sort of GamerGate uh, unfolding in that approximate period. Um, so you know it it's it's a really interesting um, kind of ecosystem that 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 takes uh, takes hold in that time. Um, do you see the current ecosystem as sort of continuous with that or has it shifted? Um, a little bit, you know, what I see shifting is sort of the aesthetics of it. Like it, I think there's been a realization that like niche sexual tastes and like weird, you know, like Tumblr style labels has kind of been played out. But I mean, like, look, the New York Times writing about Tradcath Twitter uh, and mm. Paul Scalis in the space of a year. And that's, right. you know, not to, that's to say nothing of all the other similar articles that came out really. I mean, it, it you know, it's, it's, it says it all. I, I, my prediction is that, um, we're going to see like that kind of flavor, um, maybe not like explicitly like right wing, but this sort of like neglected, like dissident side of internet culture, um, further, you know, become, you know, become diluted and uh, made a, you know, a currency of coolness. Um, and it, you know, it's not that I think that we're going to see like people like zero HP Lovecraft, um, you know, himself, like have his, his book be, uh, you know, on the shelves of, of Walmart or something, but there's definitely going to be people who see that success um, and are going in, and have read a, a newspaper article about him or someone like him, copy it and then dilute it. And then that guy's going to be the guy who starts, um, you know, who has some kind of like mainstream success because we've completely played out the other side. And I think it's just going to be ping ponging between different reactions to different movements like that. So. I mean, one thing I appreciate in your approach that I sort of try to do myself is that I think you tend to position yourself as an observer uh, more than much more than a polemicist. And, uh, you know, I think that, that can be kind of a, it can be a difficult position to occupy because people want takes. They don't just want, you know, again, this goes back to what we were saying about why perhaps Turkle's work isn't more um, 
celebrated is that she doesn't she doesn't really have a hot take exactly she's not um you know uh she's not promote exactly promoting or condemning anything um she's just trying to look at it and make sense of it um so you know in particular i'd say with trying to understand the you know shifting ideas about uh social justice, I'd say particularly gender and um, sexuality, you know, I, um, I tend to find there is, um, there's relatively little attempt to just, you know, listen to and see what, um, see what you can figure out about how people are you know, trying to make sense of and understand um, their situation in a way that is neither, you know, kind of affirming or celebrating their view as the correct one or kind of denouncing it. Um, so, you know, I think I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, in terms of this Tumblr project and more broadly, it, it seems like you're, you're trying to provide a genealogy of some of these things that, you know, are sort of the, the lightning rod issues of culture war debates. Um, so what's, what are some ways of talking about them that maybe get us beyond the, the sort of more obvious and predictable framings? Yeah. Um, you know, I, so I don't know what's like, you know, morally right or wrong. I, I have sort of, there's some things I have opinions on, but who knows. Right. But I, I think we'll, we'll be able to like hit it deeper truths. If we think about like, one, like we've said before, we don't think nearly enough about like, what does it mean that these ideas are being transmitted almost hundred percent virtually? Um, and like, what, you know, what do these ideas, like, ha- like, you know, where else have we seen this behavior? Um, I think is like a big question we need to ask. And like, where else are we seeing it happen now? Um, I think there's like way too much focus on, um, sort of like, like trying to like politicize it and asking maybe like, you know, who is like, is this, if it, is it a power grab? Who is it a power grab for? I mean, I think there's, that's not totally irrelevant, but I, I I think like people aren't like looking enough at, um, like this isn't, we know this isn't new. Um, we seem to know where it came from, but kind of like ignore, ignore that. Um, you know, it's, it's, if it, if it is, if these are ideas that are being abused, um, you know, like what else, what else can we, can we learn from them? Um, yeah, I mean, it it just, it just feels like the whole fact that this is emerging on the internet completely gets lost from the conversation. Um, we, we also don't think enough about how we talk about ideas, how, you know, how things get so popular. Is it actually just because like people are like neutrally reporting on like a critical mass of behavioral changes? That seems kind of obviously untrue. Um, but I don't think it's as simple as like, uh, you know, Democrats want control and they seeded these ideas and, uh, you know, are using it to close people's minds or something. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I've, I've sort of been consistently trying to argue that you have to you know, you have to root these developments in, you know, much deeper kind of structural shifts. And, you know, one of them is definitely just what happens with the, the whole, you know, renegotiation of, of selfhood that the Turkle kind of describes throughout her work. And so, yeah, I mean, the way that, 
a lot of these debates have become, um, you know, really, uh, you know, mediated again through the the increasing kind of reorientation of life towards screens um, and of the self, you know, through its reflection in these kind of screen spaces. Um, and so, you know, I, again, I think uh, people and, and, you know, the reason I think this matters is because, you know, regardless of what you think about these developments, um, a great deal of the sort of critical writing about it just seems to proceed from the assumption that you can somehow just, if you sort of criticize it loudly enough, then somehow that, um, you know, it, it's, it's an understanding of, uh, you know, that's, that seems to have this model of just kind of ideas floating in space and fighting it out um, without thinking about how these ideas are, um, you know, manifestations of people's uh, sort of socially, me socially and technolo technologically mediated lives, um, and you know, are sort of consumed and reproduced in those contexts. So, you know, I, I just sort of think before you figure out how to respond to it at all, you just have to try to understand. I mean, clearly, some incredible things have happened. I mean, here's a you know a simple example. I think is like. You know, one of the more remarkable ones, I would say, is the shifting consensus around the notion of biological sex, um, which, you know, I can definitely say that on a college campus 10 years ago, um, around the time I was in grad school, you know, e even on a college campus in a sort of humanities department where there was a lot of theory, you know, I remember like actually discussing sort of some Judith Butler and related materials where this idea of biological sex is socially constructed was discussed and students were generally unreceptive to it, right? They were, they were pretty critical of it. So that's obviously just one anecdote, but you know, it was, it was exactly the kind of setting where you would imagine that to be the kind of moment when, you know, that, that sort of idea would have already been, a, at least a little bit embraced, but, but I would say that it generally wasn't. So, so the fact that we're now in a situation where that notion is, is seemingly, um, you know, the, the idea that the only people who talk about biological sex are TERFs or something like that is, um, is quite a remarkable place to have arrived just in the past 10 years to my mind. Right. So that's maybe a, that's a simple example of like a, a claim that, you know, the first thing, the first versions of it I encountered were coming out of kind of Butler and Butlerian inspired gender theory. And, you know, it, it was at that time, even in the sort of recondite settings in which I was um, in grad school, where these sorts of ideas were far more widespread was was still kind of a hard sell. So, you know, again, I think um, to me, there's no way of imagining this trajectory without thinking about how, um, if you're, you know, if your life is essentially mediated by the screen, um, that, you know, again, in this, this Turkel sense that, you know, th these sort of objects and the ideas associated with them become a new sort of model and exteriorization of how you think about yourself, um, that, that you can sort of use to navigate the world. You know, it's it's just hard for me to to imagine this kind of idea or that 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 particular evolution of ideas absent 
you know, the, um, the reorientation of the majority's pe- the majority of people's lives towards screens during that time. Um, so I don't, you know, that's probably an oversimplified version, but to me, it, it just is, is maybe a, just a clear example. Um, yeah, no, I was, I was just going to say, like, I mean, the I think the most important thing that uh, Turkle does is, like, she keeps asking the question of, like, you know, how is it even on, like, the subconscious level changing our conceptions of ourselves? Like, you can, like, reading reading her gender trouble uh, chapter um, about people gender swapping on MUDs, like, and then sort of assuming that this becomes like the dominant worldview, one can then very easily imagine how biological sex becomes a question to people, especially if you add the like the layer that it it was an audacious claim that got clicks and then kind of spread like like the two in conjunction, like, of course, right? <laughs> you know? Right. So because then we also have just the... um the so with the the second point would just be the kind of attention economy dynamic that um you know sort of outre ideas will um will in some sense uh you know be advantaged in their ability to spread in these kind of settings um simply because they set themselves apart right and you know, I think that too is, um, and you know, it's 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 also interesting in relation to how I think you know as somebody who was like studying sort of critical theory in a uni- in an elite university ten to fifteen years ago. You know, I think if if you're in that kind of world, or or if you were, there was this kind of sense that you were, you were. I mean, there was almost this kind of gnostic sense of being part of this elite, right? Who who understood these. Um, extremely counterintuitive truths that, you know, you sort of accept it as given that the majority of the population wouldn't, wouldn't get with you on, you know, you, you were just like, you knew that if you tried to make this claim to, you know, somebody on the street, much less, I mean, even your sort of average group of 18 year olds, they would be a hard sell at best. Um, but, you know, what I think, part of what we're also describing is the, the, um, the develop another, you know, tendency of the development of these platforms is, is that, you know, the sort of, um, strange and counterintuitive can have a, um, a, a sort of adaptive advantage if, if we want to use a kind of, um, you know, Dawkinsian mimetic framework, um, in, in its ability to propagate in these kinds of settings. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm total, I'm totally with you. Um, I, I also like one thing I wonder is like how much people, um, like at that, at that time, not having had that experience, like how much people were, even if they understood these truths, like how much they believed them and now what it feels like now, like having played the game of like how to have the most radical idea in the room and how to own the most radical idea in the room. What it feels like now that this is sort of like, people are kind of like performing that and like clumsily making their way through it. Like, I feel like I hear so often, and I'm sure I even do some version of this myself of like people trying to parrot like, uh, you know, third hand, 
versions of some of these ideas. And then like, they kind of miss the point and they just kind of feel like they they're supposed to, because that's the done thing. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, this, I, I, right. I, and I think this is, you know, again, another reason why it's helpful to go back to this kind of muds context that Turkle is exploring because, you know, it often involves this kind of, you know, living as if, or um, this, this, you know, this virtual dimension, right. In which you, you can sort of um, bracket a lot of what, you know, you might otherwise take for granted and kind of live as if something else is the case. Right. And, you know, when that's um, in a sort of game context, it's, uh, it's a kind of, um, you know, it's, it's contained in a sense, but, you know, when we're moving on to these sorts of gamified platforms, you know, that, that becomes in a sense, a kind of, new epistemological or sort of epistemic frame um, because you know what you know if 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 you make a claim like um, there's no such thing as biological sex and the only people who think that are turfs right which many people do make including ones who are you know pretty prominent these days in journalism in particular um, you know well if you make that kind of a claim on the um, you know on the internet, um, then what is the function of that claim? Well, essentially the function of it is to, um, you know, play a certain language game in, in, in a certain context where certain kinds of things are incentivized and certain kinds of things are de-incentivized, right? And so, um, you know, there's a sense that, I mean, the, the sort of rubber never has to hit the road because the real function of this kind of an assertion is largely to um to uh you know win a certain sort of um gamified contest um and you know part of what that means is that this this sort of virtual realm in which you know a great deal can be sort of bracketed um for you know, for the sake of the game is, is, you know, is also, in, but is also increasingly defining, you know, what, um, what accepted truth claims are more broadly in sort of institutions. And so that, um, you know, that's where it's this sort of rubber is beginning to hit the road. And I guess what will be interesting to see is how that plays out, you know, and I'd say particularly in, you know, and I don't know, there's been coverage of this lately. I don't know how much of it is. I think it's possible some of it is kind of, you know, overinflating certain extreme cases or something like that. But, you know, I mean, what happens when these kinds of ideas become de rigueur in, say, medicine, right, or in other realms where, you know, it, the, <laughs> there's, a, there's a clear sort of non-game aspect of the whole thing. Um, so to me, that's, you know, as far as whatever this kind of Tumblr, um, this kind of uh, Tumblr ideological revolution, which again, I think is also a revolution of a kind of affective relation to the self and, um, you know, to, to ideas and beliefs and convictions. Um, you know, it, I don't know if there's a point at which if this, you know, to use your lab leak metaphor, this, um, this, you know, reaches a different level of kind of, um, systemic risk. I, it's, it's hard. I think it, it's going to be hard to 
to solve. Um, you know, there's, it, it, you know, to whatever extent it can be solved, even if sort of like the aesthetic dimensions switch out and we have some kind of like new, or like, oh, this, you know, uh, biological sex isn't real. That's a shade too far. So let's, you know, insert something else there. Um, you know, whether it's like a too stringent conception of biological sex or something. Um, because I think like fundamentally what's going on is like, you know, Sherry sets up this framework of like, you have the, the game where the curtain never closes. Um, but there's still a curtain there. There's still a boundary, however flimsy it is. Um, and I think what's happening now is like, there is no, there either is no boundary or like the game is primary and then the real life is, is secondary. Um, and they're not like competing quite, um, in the same way, you know, like mentioning the, the biological sex issue, um, kind of like, it also reminds me of an essay that Sherry references as life on the screen. And then I also, I sent out of my Substack today, uh, called a rape in cyberspace, which is like, which basically like lays out the, the question, are words violence? Um, and if you're thinking of yourself, like primarily as digitally, even if that's like subconscious, there, well, you can sort of be erased in that way. Like it makes perfect sense if like that's your primary reality. And like, if you're primarily thinking of yourself through that lens, um, but you still have a need to like visit a doctor, then it, it kind of like links up better. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like, like the language of like, this is a, a role play actually is like really useful. Um, and, and it should kind of leave the pejorative realm because there is like a real like role play element going on here. I think the, yeah, the whole sort of words or violence question is, is another one that's, um, I, I think it goes back to what the quote from Turkle about that I shared about, you know, this, this idea of um, reality being fundamentally linguistic, right. Which is at least a, a sort of crude way of understanding, um, you know, certain strands of, of critical theory of sort of um, postmodern theory. Um, but that, you know, in some sense, this, uh, this becomes a sort of much more concrete, question when when um the degree to which you know text is you know is sort of circulate you know publicly circulating text is the you know primary means by which we engage with and interact with the rest of the world um it, it just it takes on a much more concrete reality um and becomes i'd say harder to dismiss in some sense regardless of what you you know re regardless of how you conceive of this idea right because um it's and but then on the other hand you know there there are sort of odd things like i i was i think i was reading something the other day and i was reminded that um I, I I just I read some par like some paragraph summary of some news article and it was like you know r about race so it was like white was in capitals and black was in capitals right and um, you know I remembered that for some reason I, or I'm, I'm sure there was an articulation of the reason but you know it it seems very odd to me now that uh, like basically all news organizations decided after George Floyd that what they were going to do was. Initially, I think, and, and I think some of them still only do this for black, right? But others um, now do this for white as well. And so, 
it, it's it's a very odd but interesting example of how you know I think that does both that that change and when you read a news article and it it has that capitalization, you know I think it both corresponds to and reinforces a sort of actual genuine shift in social reality, right? Um, and it 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 you know partly because it because of what it highlights and what it makes invisible or less visible. Um, and so, you know, on one hand, there's a there's a level of it that just seems bizarre and absurd to me where I just want to make fun of it as a, a sort of, um, you know, a completely pointless and empty symbolic gesture that that these news organizations undertook just in order to, you know, um, be able to present some kind of evidence that they were, you know, quote unquote, doing something. But but, you know, I, so that I think was probably my original reaction to it. And then also my initial reaction on noticing that and just thinking, oh, yeah, wasn't that weird that everybody did that um, and thought that this was somehow like a relevant and meaningful response. Like part of me is highly skeptical in that sense. But I think my second reaction was that, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, again, it's, it's both a reflection of and uh, a reinforcement of a genuine and deep shift in social reality as all of us apprehend it. And whether we like it or not, that is the case. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I'm more persuaded by my, by that second reaction now that I am, but than I, than I am by my initial kind of just dismissive reaction. I think it's fair to be dismissive because like, I, you know, <laughs> as, as, as much as I think like the digital touches everything and like, there is no more touch grass and what have you. I mean, that also doesn't change the fact that people like there is still a real world where there's, you know, real things happen. People, you know, um, protests happen, riots happen. It, like these, it, the, these things are, you know, you still need to go to the DMV, you still need to go to the doctor. Um, but it's just even even though these things are still happening, it just feels like at, for, at the very least for the people who are uh, reporting on. I mean, I think this is actually maybe the biggest part of it of, of all for the people who are reporting the news. Um, digital comes first um, across almost every dimension. Yeah. And I mean, I do you know, I, I do tend to think there's a disjunction here again. You know, I, I think that this. Um, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is with this capitalization, you know, essentially what it tells us is that this, you know, there's this elevation of this, this particularly this one racial divide to the kind of center of consciousness. Um, and so it becomes the primary sort of prism through which reality is apprehended. Um, and I think that's, you know, potentially quite dark um, and not, not a place that I would think we want to go. Um, in the long run, but you know, it, it, it just, uh, on the other hand, I do think that there is a disjunction between, um, different and this, you know, again, is, I think just evidence that, that another thing that this is doing is, is splitting, you know, reality, right. We're, we're, we're experiencing a kind of, you know, and this isn't an original point, but a, a fragmentation of reality, both in, into different kind of splintered online spheres, but also into, you know, different spheres, depending on what your media consumption habits are. And that's, um, you know, that's, I think, been quite remarkable and has accelerated. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm big on the, on the media shaping people's, uh, how people navigate the world. Um, I guess like maybe that this will maybe be like the last thing I say about race. Uh, but, uh, I think it's really interesting that in Turkle's work and a lot of other like early internet, uh, you know, ethnographers, they, they, they say that, um, gender and race may like cease to, uh, become like part of how people, uh, you know, get power in the digital world, uh, or like as we, you know, as we enter an increasingly more digital world. Uh, so we'll have to find like new hierarchies. I mean, I think is interesting is like I think they weren't wrong because I like the way race is functioning and the way gender is functioning has changed so much. Um, so that yeah. I mean, that was I I was I was thinking of actually like uh, there, there's like a section in Life on the Screen where. Um, uh, Sherry's talking about like some, like the way like politics ends up being expressed online. And she, she meant, she makes this, this race and gender point that you, you know, you, you see so often in like kind of these more optimistic works. Um, and it's just, it's really, it's interesting. like how right and wrong (laughs) they were. Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is, um, you know, I guess another another recommendation to go back and um, read Sherry Turkle's work to those who haven't, um, because I think it does provide a lot of you know really important context and uh, and just um, allows us to see both the continuities and discontinuities of our moment with this much longer evolution. So I think we can wrap it up there. Um, it's been a pleasure talking, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. It was really fun. And everyone check out default friend. It's um, .substack.com for default friend Substack. If you're interested in all of what we've been discussing and more. And um, I would say follow default friend on Twitter, but um, she's not currently there, but perhaps we'll be, we'll resurrect as we were talking about before, um, you know, this possibility of new beginnings on these, on these sites. Right. Yeah, I always come back. (laughs) It takes me a couple months. (laughs) So anyway, you can uh, look out for her in the future for her, um, her next incarnation. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks.